Welcome back, everyone, to another episode of Notes from the Aleph. An Aleph is a high point from which all things are visible, and from our vantage point, we'll be looking at tabletop role-playing games, their design, and the theory behind those designs. Around here, our motto is to be fair, build up, and have fun. I'm your host, Griffin, joined by our editor, Theta, our local designer, Norman Rafferty, and our good friend and GM, Red Rabbit, as well as our other good friend, Lessons Learned, here as our guest for today. When it comes to tabletop role-playing games, I have 15 years of experience running, playing, and frequently fixing problematic rules at the table. Pronouns are he, him, they, them, Rafferty. Hello, world. I'm Norman Rafferty, he, him, at Sanguine Games. Uh, we make tabletop games uh, that are sold in various outlets and box games and other stuff and a um, uh, bunch of other cool stuff. So, Red. Hi, I'm Red Rabbit, a professional GM who's running our Wednesday Iron Claw game here on the channel. I also run games of 5th edition Vampire the Masquerade 5th edition and occasionally Dungeon World, and I consider myself a student of narrative and game design. And lessons. I'm Lessons Learned. Let's learn one over Twitch. Lessons Learned on YouTube. So I'm a YouTuber, a streamer, a GM uh, over 20 years, and also budding game designer. And I'm also a writer. Uh, I have a collection of short stories, uh, flash fiction, uh, which is uh, over at Amazon called Night and Stars for 99 cents. Pick up a copy today. Right, and Red, why don't you go ahead and kick the topic off? Yeah, so today I want to talk about... Um, Something that is a trend that I have seen show up a lot in uh, the role-playing games that I have played in, and also in some published adventures, uh, specifically that um, RPGs cribbing aspects of video games and their design. And I have a case study for this, which is a published adventure. It appeared in the book Candlekeep Mysteries, which was one of the more recent adventure collections that was published by Wizards of the Coast. The adventure in question is called The Lore of Lurue, or Luru, I don't know how it's pronounced. Basically, the setup for this is that the players find a book. The book is a historical account of something that happened in Faerun history and the Forgotten Realms. But when you read the book, you get sucked into a simulation of the event to experience it firsthand. Your characters do. Um, and I immediately noticed that there were some uh, three egregious video game tropes that appeared in this adventure. So I'm going to talk about them in brief. The very first one is Invisible Walls. The first thing the text tells you as the PCs arrive is that there are literal invisible walls that block them from progressing anywhere besides going deeper into the forest where the story path is supposed to lead them, which, of course, is uh, something that removes player agency. The second thing that stands out to me is this idea of uh, save scumming, which is the process in video games of reloading an older save to uh, negate bad consequences that happened during your playtime. Um in this adventure, if the characters die while in the simulation, they are booted out of the book. Uh, it then says that they can take a long rest, but because time moves differently, only moments pass in the simulation, they can read the book again and join the party at full health. So, of course, this removes any consequence of failure or dying from the events. And the last thing that really stood out to me in this is this concept of linear storytelling. Um, specifically, the events of this adventure, of this historical adventure, are predetermined in the fiction itself, which means that the success or failure of the final fight leads to the very same narrative outcome. Uh, of the infinite possibilities of a group story are hacked down to two, a good ending where the party gets extra loot and a bad ending where they don't. And as a final insult, there's a box text that summarizes the outcome of the adventure without any mention or regard for the player's actions. 
And of course, this removes any kind of personal stakes for the player characters, starting from the very beginning of the adventure. So these things stood out to me. It reminded me of other RPG sessions I've played in that felt inspired by video games, specifically and strangely by their limitations rather than their strengths. So I wanted well, to ask you guys if this was something that you have experienced and how do you think you would go about discouraging this mindset for those who are new to playing and running these games? Or do you think it's even a bad thing? I think it's a bad thing. Well, uh, the, the first thing I want to hit on is is I think that's amazing because it shows how far we've come. So Dungeons and Dragons, before it turned into second edition, or actually even second, before third edition, had another fork, often called the BECMI fork, Beckme fork or whatever, and uh, which was the basic set. And there's an adventure that came out for that back in the 80s. Here's my gray hair again, called Castle Amber, Chateau d'Amberville. Uh, and it's a magic enchanted castle that was fairy tale themed. And one of the encounters in that is you go to the library and there's a fantasy book and you get trapped inside the book. Ooh, historical precedent. Encounters that happen inside the book. Only, this is the 80s, back when computers were half as powerful and 100 times larger. So this author is influenced in no way by computer games. So anything you meet can horribly kill you. Well, there you go. Uh, and then you're Burma dead because short rest and long rest are not concepts in old school D&D. So, um, yeah, and so that's the first thing. Like, everything in Chateau and Castle Amber kills you. The, um, it just, <laughs> I remember, yeah. Yeah, there's instant death. I love the banquet hall. There's, like, a banquet hall. It's like, oh, there's food here, and there are ghosts eating the food. If you eat any of the food, it could randomly kill you. And then you're a ghost in the banquet hall. Yeah. Which, um, but, but yeah, and there's also... Hey, don't, don't touch the ghost, by the way. That's a bad idea, too. <laughs> yeah, oh, yeah every, everything kills you or ages you or... Yeah. So, so um, you know, it's funny that you bring that up, because the, the hoops that this designer jumped through to 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 say we're gonna do this just like a computer game um i think it's funny um uh i want to say that that the the issue i have is the hoops uh i i think that um because we were just doing a discussion of what expectations do players come to the game with and one problem i have to say this is a problem many people who play computer games five-year-old niece plays computer games Okay, so they're going to come, when people come to your table, unless they've been in a, you know, in a cave with no electricity, they have played a computer game before they've played tabletop D&D. And so they're going to come to your game expecting certain things. They're going to come expecting that there will be innocent shopkeepers that we can talk to that we're not allowed to kill because swords just miss them. And there will be, you know, bad guys that you are supposed to kill. And that's the only thing you can do with them is kill them because there will not be any negotiation options. They stand next to you and your bar goes down. Uh, and like you said, invisible walls that keep you from going off track and all that kind of stuff. And people like have just grown to accept that. That's what a fantasy is. And that's not necessarily bad if that's what you're being sold on. The One of the problems we run into with tabletop games is that uh, tabletop games, every single one of them off some text in it of, you can do whatever you want. You can break the rules if it doesn't appropriate. It's a theater of imagination. Learn to express yourself as a new kind of character. They'll all have text in there like that, and that might not be true for the experience. You might be getting together with a bunch of people who want to do a on-rails kill a bunch of things. And I think, um, or more importantly, like you just said, the book adventure is written. You know, I've been on more than one adventure that even though it didn't have invisible walls, they were clearly linear quests. And I'm talking about modern stuff, like stuff published for fourth or fifth edition or Pathfinder that assumes you will do everything in linear order and have programmed encounters like that, that are written like their computer game. 
But you have all this text in a tabletop game that tells you it's not like that. That tells you it's more open-ended. And um, I'll meet people who tell me, well, none of that's true. I mean, shut the hell up. Uh, <laughs> it's um, Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, like, like I'm not... I, I have nothing against the streamer people like the critical role people, but in that kind of performative role play, if the director says we're moving on to the next scene, gather up your stuff and move and is directed, you don't want any dead air. You want the show to keep moving. You're here to watch the, the talent be all performative and, and cool and witty and that sort of thing. And so people move on to the next thing, you know, they're cool with that. So I, I think the, the issue I'm having here is what do you expect out of the game? Because if you, if you start running it like a computer game, your players are going to treat it like a computer game. You're only going to have problems if you try to do other things. Yeah, you know, I, I think um, a lot of the stuff that stood out to me as just kind of audacious in this particular case is that there are um, these are a lot of these are criticisms that video games themselves would get. You know, if you ran into a game that gave you a great open vista but then you ran into an invisible wall you'd get dinged on metacritic for stuff like that like it's not like it's uh i think it's more excusable in a video game context than it is in a role-playing game context but it's strange to me that that felt like an option you know for this writer um i've similarly had experiences playing in games with people that i've played with before that i love and respect um and will be like trading off doing one shots and things and they'll they'll come up with very contrived scenarios that are very clearly like oh this is like a level of baldur's gate or this is just a you've been transported to another plane there's no stakes none of this will matter it's a one shot i understand but stating it specifically in the fiction is like telling your player characters also like don't worry like nothing you do matters here which is something that is like a stake to the heart for me when it comes well when it comes time to role playing actually some people that's awesome i just want to point out my favorite scene in ready player 1 which is where apparently our hero recruits 20 other people and assigns all of them a role from Monty Python and the Holy Grail. And they all stand around and recite the entire script word for word with no inaction. Wow. Is this why the movie's three hours long? They just have like a whole Monty Python movie inside of it? Is that why? Uh, uh, you know, it's kind of glossed over as like a sidebar, but one of the object mm. things they have to do to get to the next objective is recite word for word the entire script of Monty Python and all the crap. Oh, and, so got, wow. uh, and so we got a bunch of volunteers to do this. Remember, he he's the one who gets the reward. None of the volunteers get crap. I mean, promise it. Uh, but yeah, and remember, error free. So it was like, uh, I guess, and this is presented as something people would do for fun. I'm I'm more and more reminded that I'm a boomer on the internet. I'm not really a boomer, I guess, technically, but like there's a lot of things that I think I personally would never consider fun and that people are like, no, this is great. Um, I was just shown a, a Twitter account where this guy is making up random uh, adjectives about rabbits and i was like what is this like a, a computer generated thing and he's just like no this guy just you know comes up with creative little sentences about rabbits and i'm like i don't understand this world or this internet anymore like <laughs> oh success i don't get it but like i am very curious though um maybe griff i don't know if you have any input on this because i know you do a lot of gming as well um but have you come across uh situations like this where um perhaps people are approaching game design like they would approach like designing a level of a video game versus you know a, a narrative i i think so and probably because i've done it a little bit myself because you know 
I'm inspired by other things. I see like a movie and I want to go, hey, I want to take all these beats. I want to put it in there. But with a video game, of course, you can try stealing things mechanically. And so I've done some looking into in the past of video game design, specifically when it comes to, say, map design, because the way you organize a map organizes how the players flow through an area. But the way that a video game designs a space is different from the way that, say, a realistic space is ordinarily arranged. So uh, so a simpler one is like the arena setup, where you have maybe like a circular path that goes around something. So players will circle, circulate constantly through. And this is what you kind of usually see in like a deathmatch design or something. If you just threw a big circle at a bunch of players and said, this is the dungeon, it's not really going to operate in that same way, I think. But there are techniques that are interesting that do transit over, like the wedge concept, where players have to choose to go past a point of no return and then continue forward and not continue to backtrack again. But if you're playing in a tabletop role-playing game, there are 50 different ways you could bypass that. The easiest of which is just like, I brought the ladder. Yeah, <laughs> there you go. Like my five gold on the ladder and I'm just going to go back up the wedge. Yeah, okay, I mean, yeah. You don't even, you, uh, this gets into things like you don't even need the ladder. Like there's a uh, game back to Tyrant Queen. I remember there's an adventure where you have to go into a warehouse. And it was like, you know, some of us are ropes and some of us are fighter, which means we get climbing as a proficient ability. Climbing, lockpicking, sneaking, you go in, you scout out the whole place, you take the objective, you leave, or, you don't even do the dungeon. We don't even have to go mm -hmm. in. It's If you go in the front door, they're all waiting for you if you barge in the front door. We could go in the top, we can go in the windows, we can go inside, we can go back if there is a back. But I mean, like, uh, I mean, I've seen these adventures that were written that have absolutely, like, no provisions in them for the idea that players would do anything uh, mm -hmm. off book and uh you know all of like well, if it was a computer game they could have just like put invisible walls or barricades in my way to not let me do that a five now, book I, ledge that you dropped off of exactly right i had a good gm who let us roll with it another gm could just say well your rolls fail or whatever uh, or right. couldn't roll with it but and um it's oh, i i'm you since i'm on blame the designer day it's kind of like it's it's weird that you that it's the mixed message. Like Dungeons and Dragons will say, here is the rogue. The rogue's special ability is they can buy lots of conversation skills, athletic skills, lockpicking skills, thievery skills, things to bypass normal system, period. Here is an adventure. We will pretend you have never seen a rogue and they will never show up and, and nothing in the game will be written in mind that your party would have even a single rogue in. Right, there's no condition for bypassing it, even though the option is easily available to you. Right, a good game like Deus Ex or Quest for Glory, because like Quest for Glory is a classic game where you could pick, you know, thief, uh, fighter, or wizard, and later paladin. You could have a class, and so they specifically built into this computer game from the freaking '90s. They built into it if you solve this one way, you know, there'll be at least three or four different solutions to a problem. Uh, yeah. and, and, and you know at least built into it and like i'm getting mad at these games where they're not even as good as the computer games the computer games would at least have two or three ideas to get right and of course but like I to come back to it i think a lot of people want to replicate the feeling that they get out of video games where these things happen and they don't quite understand the design behind it but where the actual design of it could occasionally help with the design of getting towards the thing that you want to construct in the first place 
So, you know, it's like, of course you can get yourself out of the pit or investigate the building, but the thing that you're trying to replicate is like a desperate attempt to uh, fight through and save someone from a kidnapping or something, right? Yeah, like, but I'm the experience in the game you wanted to replicate. I'm going to be the outlier, a way outlier. Go for it, please. Because I don't think this is a problem, as described so far, of people <laughs> emulating video games. In fact, it's a problem I also find in video games coming from the video game angle, because I think, first of all, when people talk about video games, they make a lot of comparisons to movies and, and television. And I say, no, 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 the comparisons you should be making is the closest, not one-to-one, the closest is the tabletop RPGs, because you have things like player agency and the illusion of control, right? The problem I would diagnose here is that the designer in the particular book and, and other samples, they had they were storytelling. Now, this is where yeah. it gets... Get, it gets a chance because people hear that it's like, oh no, you're being sac- you know sacrilegious. Of course, we're doing storytelling. It's like, hold on. They come to the table with a as if they were writers or they were directors of a play, a movie, or a writer of a book. I have this story, and you players, your role is to stand there, say the line, throw this magic, you know, do this, do this as a program approach, whether it's in from the point of view of a video game, because that's what they experience, or theater or a movie. And if you don't do that, then I am not having fun as a player because you're not following my story. Yeah. Right. So, of course, you have invisible walls because if somebody goes off script, that's not the plot. Right. Uh, well, you, no, it, the I, plot also doesn't call for anybody actually dying. So you can come out and be safe because I don't want anybody, my characters to die, you know, because you're my characters. Right. So it's not time to die. Though. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, no, I, I would. Uh, I think the reason why we're like when I'm bringing up the computer games, though, is because um, okay. So why would someone play a computer game as opposed to watching a movie? I mean, they're both experiences you can experience on a multimedia device. Uh, so um, and, and what happened is over time is as computers got more sophisticated, they added something called the cutscene, which was when we put black bars on the screen and we tell you like here is uh, uh, something in the game that's going to play out that's going to be entertaining. Uh, the version of the cutscene in role-playing games is the boxed text. Uh, originally, they would have dungeon rooms that would have short little descriptions. The problem was they would often have secrets in them, like they would describe secret doors and stuff like that, or monsters that were hidden and players weren't supposed to know that. So later, they started adding box text, which was, here's a description of what's in the room, and here, you know, box, tell them this, and then here are the stats of the monsters and these secrets. And then that started to evolve in, Here's long sequences of NPCs showing up and saying things to you and things I'm going to go ahead and read off. Uh, you know, like and you're just going to sit there and watch. Like I've seen so many vampire adventures that have this, that you just, I'm going to read off all this text and you're going to sit there and watch. And then when I'm done, you get to act. This was simultaneous yeah. with the rise of computer games, where computer games started to have the cutscenes. So I could see Lesson's point of, is this a computer trope or is this a storytelling trope that we associate with linear computer games and linear stories? Um, mm. I, I would suggest that the reason why we're bringing this up as video games is because I think Lessons is correct, but I'm, but I'm going to get back to people will experience a computer game before they will play a tabletop game. They will play Minecraft and Fortnite, when they're seven, they are probably not playing Dungeons and Dragons until they're 11, 12, or 13. So, but it's a good idea that you bring Minecraft, because Minecraft is one of those games where you drop in the world, you're given a couple of tools, and go like, go nuts. I mean, it has rules, right? But then, for example, you don't have somebody going like, now you enter the door, and there is three orcs sitting at the table, right? But right? you do have saves coming, because you, you can have creative mode where there's no threats yeah. at all. 
But, but even but, then, you have freedom. You have freedom of you know flying or whatever. Whatever you want, you know. But but yeah. also there's the idea. I mean, this is the one thing that that you know, like like it's bizarre about computer games that isn't in tabletops. In computer games, you can die with impunity. There's almost no game out there has permadeath in them. Uh, mm-hmm. There's the Diablo uh, three had the note on the permadeath page that says, please do not contact our admins if your character permadies. Your admin will not resurrect them. If you choose permadeath, you can die permanently. We're reminding you what this is. And old man Rafferty says, you know, like back then we didn't call it permadeath. We called it death. Death. So, right. I mean, that's why I said earlier, it's not a one-to-one comparison, right? So you you do have this problem. uh, You you do have this problem in the role-playing games where, well, specifically you have this problem in Dungeons & Dragons. Because Dungeons and Dragons decided that resurrection is ridiculously cheap and easy. Um, I mean, it's always my issue when you have like a murder mystery. It's like, well, the guy's dead. We can just raise him from the dead. Raising from the dead is a simple operation. In fact, you're paying us to, to, him. to investigate this. You could have spent that money on resting him. I'm trying to <laughs> you here. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and, and like, uh, like I'm not welcome at many people's tables because I'll start pointing out one of my favorite D and D ones was where we um we fight the evil commander back to his chambers. And I say, yes, we've got him trapped in there. Now if you starve him out. And the guy next to me says, unless he has a third level cleric and create food and water. Damn it. <laughs> <laughs> um, so it's, um, you know, like, like this got into a bigger question of, do you think of the game in terms of the rules? I mean, you might run, you might wind up in the problem where people start thinking of stuff in terms of storytelling. Uh, like, le- I think, I, le- I think lessons idea storytelling, but I want to say storytelling inspired by computer games. When, uh, because I think a lot of people will have seen like a call of call of duty has cutscene guys. Yeah. Um, and I know yeah. nine year olds play that um, oh, yeah. <laughs> a little too much even. Right. I mean, you, they'll have those sequences where, I mean, you're, you're getting these beats in a lot of these modern games, like, like Dungeons and Dragons used to be, you went into a dungeon and you went into 15 rooms, half of which had something dangerous in them. And a third of which had something incredibly dangerous in them. And you had to moderate your activity and do time use forms to get through it. Dungeons and Dragons. But now when you look at a game, there'll often be a set piece where you meet someone, there's a lot of box text and a cutscene where they talk to you, and then you'll do a set piece battle. And then, as I already pointed out, you'll linearly move to the next set piece battle. These are beats clearly inspired by computer games. You know, watching time, cool media time, and then actual encounter where i can win or lose like you see this in mass yeah. effect it's like here i am talking to everyone oh no this room is chest high walls oh no uh, <laughs> yeah. Have expected it. yeah right and, and so you'd have those beats showing up the games that don't do that are outliers like uh skyrim it's also 70 so yeah now that's what i'm kind of talking about is you start to get those beats of the only thing that matters are the combat encounters and that's only where we win or lose uh, yeah, and because that's the only place we could actually all of us die. Because in the in the programmed encounters, the the scene encounters, we can't actually lose because we will move forward to the next thing. And that's very much the same beat you see in a computer game. And in a computer game, that's fine because I'm pushing buttons and this is the action part, and that's my goal is to get past those. Uh, and if I was a yeah. speedrunner, I could just skip the cutscene, and no one would give me any grief. Yeah, I mean, I, when when this subject was really posted, okay, we're going to be talking for an hour about fourth edition <laughs> because, and it is not true, but it was accused. There was an accusation that fourth edition was World of Warcraft in paper form, right? That you know you had right. your characters and you had your abilities, your dailies, your this, and they had cooldowns. And but if you know about the history of Dungeons and Dragons, 
most of that stuff was there in one form or another. Like daily abilities was something that demons had. Now players have them and stuff like that. Uh, but in many ways, also, there was that thing of crunching down everything to the combat. And then anything else was grafted on. Like, oh, you want to have an encounter with somebody? Well, here's a way of everybody gets to roll. And you want to have all those utility spells? Well, no, those are now these four pages of... of yeah, no, yeah. And, and I would agree with you. In, fa- in fact, my issue with D&D 5 is I don't think it learned the lessons from d Like, people were upset. Like, D&D 4 has all these combat rules. I didn't come for combat. Okay, fine. Here's D&D 5. But D&D 5 it has less rules, period. So uh, it's a lot more breezy and less regimented. And so you can ignore stuff and play it more by the seat of your pants. But it... You know, we already complained about how, but your social skills are persuasion where you just point at people and make them do things. Charm person is back as a first level spell anyone can have. Zap, you know, be Bill Cosby and mind control people everywhere. Um, you know, it's, uh, they, they took out of it a lot of the, uh, they didn't learn any of those lessons. And then you read the adventures as we've talked about, and they're very much programmed to go to linear things where there's also either one ending or a good ending and a bad ending, and a lot of scripted encounters, which is a computer game term where you're already already set to lose this. Like you go oh, back yeah. to trope I'm reading. Yeah. yeah. You you go back to the previous D D stuff, and they while they they did have stuff in there they expected to go a certain way, um, you know, they didn't have scripted stuff that was guaranteed to end a very specific way, that the bad guy automatically escapes or gets away, or you can't negotiate with them. Uh, you know, they didn't have that kind of stuff. It's not until later where, you know, you'll get an adventure where half of it is written. This fight ended in the middle exactly the way you expected. So the rest of this will play out exactly the same. NPCs were so cool, they can just get away in the middle of a fight. That That's new stuff that's obviously inspired by the storytelling techniques. Yeah, I mean, like yeah. the, uh, the the impossible, the, the, the fight that you get into for drama points, but you're meant to lose, right? Oh, this cool guy, I'm going to fight him and, and I'm going to defeat him. But no, it's it's it serves as a again from that story's own perspective. Oh, I'm going to introduce you my favorite NPC to you, which is very cool. But I don't want you to kill him because uh, they yeah, don't have I another know. cool NPC to throw at you. No, I spent too much time. Well, the, the game on role playing. Anything could happen. Someone could just say like, ah, I just interrupt him while he's talking. Sure. Yeah, and and that that's why I talk about performative play because that kind of stuff drives <laughs> me nuts because it was like why I just went through and you know the Beatrice uh, rule from Final Fantasy Nine got him so old uh, where it's yeah it's like you told me this was a fight and I treated it seriously but then you told me like you guys can watch me stream Metro twenty thirty three which is a computer game that everybody talks about how great the story is and you can watch me stand there and do nothing for the first three hours of the game because every encounter in the first three hours of the game is scripted and yeah. and bullets are a limited resource. So I just stand there and everything happens all around me. And, yeah. and, I'm, and I'm so angry because it's like, like none of this matter. And like, do, is that, does that create a culture of people who expect that from their tabletop games that they expect that someone is going to just kind of like talk at them and story tell to them right for a while. Yes. I mean, yes, I, I, they do, and I have definitely seen this behavior where p- players will have something on the table. They will have like a literal bomb about to go off, and they'll go, "Well, you know, it won't go off until we deal with it." Yeah, right. Oh my God, the the concept of uh, I'm so glad to see something show up in gaming called the clock. The idea that <laughs> yes. um, mm-hmm. because I I kept. Well, I'm glad people formalize it. I've been putting the text in our games of if the players are too slow, bad things will happen. But I, the clock is just a great way of wording it. 
is like, if you don't deal with this problem, it will expire. Now, that used mm-hmm. to be a thing. It's even a thing in computer games. But in Fallout 2, like, you know, Fallout 2, if you don't solve it in 200 days, everyone dies. And Fallout if you die, of course, it's like everyone else you knew died because you never came back. You never came back. The water fire purifier was never fixed. We ran out of water and we all dehydrated and died. Fallout mm-hmm. 3, we need you to fix the water purifier. Take as much freaking time as you want. Yeah, it will never. Consequences are radiating the entire wasteland, right? But I think I mean they're different games, and I actually love. I remember Fallout, Fallout Two, Fallout Three. I like you uh, saying they're different games. Fallout Two, Fallout Three, different games. Yeah, different games, and I enjoyed Fallout. In fact, going back to those old games, I I can't. One of the reasons I can't play it is because that clock makes me very nervous. Now, um, that's a that's an issue of global clocks versus immediate clocks, right? Where it's like. There's a ticking bomb. Okay, I'm going to deal with it. I have no problem with the ticking bomb in front of me because, of course, I'm going to deal with it. But having this clock over me, like, ticking down, and I mean, that's a personal thing. But, it's a but, personal. It's a, but, but it's important, no, it's, and it, it does have its, its service. I understand how That's not unique to you. I mean, Yeah, that's unique to me. Grand Theft so. Auto and Skyrim and the rest of them wouldn't have, you know, and also Ubisoft, you know, the computer games follow the money. They follow mm-hmm. the review. And the people who play those games don't want ticking clocks. So what happened was you got this thing in the computer games where they tell you the quest is urgent, but you can screw around as much as you want because no one wants to get upset and nervous that there's a clock going on. Fine, game, you play it to have fun. Go to the tabletop. Is the tabletop supposed to be a living, breathing world where I'm a character and interacting with other characters and then pointedly time always moves forward? Like, is it is it like a story or a world where time always moves forward? Because I can't save scum in no. D&D. That's not a concept in that we can just revert to a previous state of the game and pretend everything didn't happen. That's not that's not there. But Special the idea that may apply, but continue. <laughs> right. If if the tyrant queen is coming or the dragon heist is going to go ahead and steal every, you know, those guys are going to go ahead and steal stuff. You know, is there a clock actually ticking? Because if there isn't, then we've entered a we've entered a fabricated world where, um, you know, we've entered a computer simulation where everything is exceptionally presented around me. And time doesn't move, like like Griffin said, time doesn't move forward until I do something to move it. And that's very much a computer game thing. You, in the 70s and the 80s, when people wrote these D&D adventures, you know, they didn't just, uh, they never said, you know, the giant, you know, they'll have provision, they'll mention in there, if the players don't do anything, the giants will overrun. If uh, the players may, you know, are wait too long, the bugbears from room 17 will come investigate what's going on in here. They would have text yeah. like that, that stuff would actually be happening around you monsters would wander yeah but now you're seeing where in the computer games they don't wander so in the tabletop games they don't wander either you're getting that no clocks nothing moves forward until i do it etc which is also why i would add you see a problem with players dicking around a lot because gms are constantly forums are constantly complaining my players feel no sense of urgency they feel no sense of urgency because if they were playing a computer game they feel no sense of urgency and that's their perspective Mm -hmm. and if you're running like a computer game and don't invoke urgency you don't get urgency this actually uh is going back to our last topic the rules is written but if you look it is implied in the mechanics of dungeons and dragons where the only real a resource that you can ever fully exhaust is your time you take a long rest you get everything back but you're expending time which means if you don't have some sort of clock mechanic the the resting mechanics are kind of busted right there's actually nothing stopping oh, yeah. you from just resting until you die of old age 
so many GMs uh, have a problem. Uh, look, that's a huge problem. In, in it started in D and D three, and it's still in D and D five because they got rid of clocks as a concept. Um, uh, um, yeah, uh, one room a day problem, where you like every set piece battle yeah. is broken because every wizard unloads everything they have because they know they're going to get a long rest, and then they do. I'm sure the comments are going to fill up with, well, my GM doesn't do this. It's like, you guys are outliers. Now, here's the fun thing to observe between three, four, and five. It's the amount of time it takes to rest. In three, you have to basically go to sleep for eight hours. If you leave, you are gone. Goodbye. Uh, Fourth edition had an interesting mechanic where it introduced the concept of taking a five-minute break, drinking as much Sunny D as you can, and then continuing on. A five-minute break is enough time to assume that nothing will necessarily come in and beat you up while you do it. You feel very free to do so. And then, of course, you can always leave and do the full rest if you want to get back a daily or something. So that was an improvement. And then fifth edition slides back, and it's an hour now. And when an hour passes by and you have dead bodies in front of you, someone's going to find out. Fifth edition has a short rest and long rest, but getting to computer problems, D&D first edition, your, most of your loot, most of your character growth came from loot. You had to pay to level up. You didn't just level up. You had to go pay money to train, right? You needed money. And you got experience points for getting money. And if you look at the charts, you get way more experience points for money than you do for killing. Okay, so on top of the, uh, also when you get in a fight, you could get killed. Like if we wandered a room and there was just treasure there, we just had to take it home. If we could sneak past the monsters, like or negotiate with them and just take the treasure home, yay! None of us died. Any monster could kill you in D and D. So you were supposed to get the treasure, and a lot of this, if you look at the adventures, there are time use forms or expenses. Your goal is to get the treasure and get home. Now that changed because people started playing the computer game. Instead of doing all this spreadsheet math of using your tensor's floating disc to take home a statue, that's just worth. Remember D&D, everything's in gold piece. No, no, the computer games, you kill things to level up. In Dragon Quest, uh, the computer games introduced the concept of grinding. The idea that you would wander to a place where there's an infinite number of monsters and stab the monsters and kill them repeatedly until you accumulated money and experience points. This is a unique concept to computer games. Grinding is not a thing in tabletop. And you've run into a huge problem in Dungeons & Dragons where the old school adventures, the way they would motivate you with the clock. I mean, why shouldn't we we killed everything in room two? Let's take an eight hour rest. We'll go kill everything in room three and take an eight hour rest. Why won't we do this? And so, you know, there's no reason not to. There's no time pressure. If the monsters in that room get bored and come to attack us, hey, we already cleared this room out. We already know the layout. We can have defensive positions. We're not blundering into your stupid traps or anything like that. Come mm-hmm. get us. Also, you're worth experience points. Come get us so we can kill you. I don't care that you're not in your lair because you're most of your treasure is in your lair, but who cares about treasure? You level up with killing, not with money. So you've run into this problem where D&D was specifically built with this idea of um, you're under time pressure, and then they remove the time pressure. And that's a huge yeah. problem. Uh, and I, I want to say it's definitely influenced by the computer games because what I'm saying right now, some people will, will like look at me funny going, really? Is that how D&D was? Like literally that's how it was. But no one knows that because you played a computer game and then you played D&D and only third edition or later. Although I, I actually started playing video games first and then D&D. In fact, I started playing D&D, uh, the Gold Box games. People who don't remember those in the 80s, and yeah, early 80s. But those were deadly because if you rested, <laughs> monsters would come in, random encounters, and attack you. So resting in the dungeon was something you didn't want to do. And so 
Yeah. Yeah. But I think the reason why we have that rule today in Dungeons and Dragons is to avoid the other aspect of it, which is that they do a couple of dungeons, go back to town, go back to the dungeon, go back to town, go back to the dungeon, which is like, why why didn't the bunters just close the door to the dungeon and don't and barricade it in and never yeah. get back in? Uh, right? I mean, if you if you guys know a, a, a recent printed adventure in the last um, 20 years that has provisions against the one room a day. Uh, yeah. I'd like to hear about it because I haven't, like, I haven't seen it. Like all of these things. I, I probably show, can. Yeah, I mean, eventually someone will find one, but I was literally playing with people. And in fact, some of the modern stuff I've seen from Pathfinder assume you're having the set piece battle of one big fight a day, you know, and, and there's no yeah. reason not to take a long rest in between each fight. I mean, people were ragging on fourth edition, but fourth edition like basically assumed gave everyone dailies and gave all of you reasons. In D&D 5th edition, you'll you, people take one long rest a day and then tell you fighter is a trap bill because uh, you, yeah. you could be playing any other class and get dailies and do way better. Uh, and it's just like, this shrug, it's it's just D&D. That's definitely yeah. something that happened because of computer games. Going back to the global clock, I do remember that Red Hand of Doom has a global clock and actually says, if you don't do these things by this time, the bad guys have their own prop, uh, own you know, projects. They're going to attack here, and they're going to do that, and they're going to keep on doing it. So yeah. it's a race against time, right? But well, that was very rare. That became very yeah. rarity. And I haven't seen an adventure like Red Hand of Doom in almost yeah, 20 I mean, years. So. I would also argue that I think that needs to be not in the adventures. That needs to be in the DM's guide. That needs to be in the core rules. It needs to be brought up to people's attention that, like, hey, there needs to be time pressure of some kind because it is the focal point on which all of our other systems are balanced. And a lot of people just don't do that. A lot of the fights that I've got into people with has been on this very topic, which is that like without it's like there's a void, there's something missing, there's a gear missing in the mechanism of this whole thing that is D&D. And most people are happy to ignore it because it means a very, well, it's what Rafferty was saying. It's the one encounter a day thing. People love being able to use all of their abilities and then they get salty when they have to go into a fight with less than all of their abilities. Right, so. and, and where, where did this expectation, I mean, that's why I have to ask, where did that expectation come from that we'd be able to do all of it? And, I, and I'd say they played a computer game and it let them do it. Yeah. Because uh, uh, because uh, you because if you tell them, you know, if you even try to warn them in advance, D&D will punish you for this, you'll get pushback. And why would you get pushback unless they had experienced something else? So, so yeah. Um, that's why I like, uh, you know, I'm, I'm glad for speaking of alternatives, like games like Powered by the Apocalypse and Blades in the Dark introduced clocks, like you yes. just suggested. Oh, yeah. They introduced the idea of time pressure, uh, you know, that things will happen in and around you as a core concept of the rules. And, um, you know, I, I, th I think that was great. I like the clocks in Powered by the Apocalypse. I've seen them used well, but for some reason, and it just be my mind is broken or something, or I'm stuck in the video game loop so I can't cross that threshold. Uh, when it comes to fortunate die games, and I read the rules and stuff like that, and I go, okay, you're going to use this clock. And I was like, what? And I read it again and go like, oh, you're going to use the clock. So like, but I think my, my reason is because I already use clocks. Like I would have a D4 or something. It's like I'm counting down. So having it mandated in some way... 
right. It, it just specifying the thing that maybe you're already doing. When I run games, I'm not usually thinking like very specific, like, oh yeah, there's four quota points, and as soon as those points go away, the thing happens. I'm just thinking the players have spent the last three days in the tavern and kind of have let the wizard do whatever he wants. He's coming to town yeah. now. He's gonna burn it. He's done with your shit. Yeah, they're deceptively <laughs> simple mechanically to the point where you're like do i even have to do this or to the point where you're like that's brilliant why did that never ever occur to me to do but and i enjoyed because yeah it helps you remember that you should do something about it i I was under the same yeah i was under the same belief that i would sit there and follow story beats going well you guys went and did this so it'd be more meaningful from a story point of view if the villains went ahead and did that but Mm -hmm. i i think the huge problem speaking of video games uh, one thing I think that's a positive influence in the video games is um, it's it's the quote from Doctor Strangelove, which is the purpose of having a doomsday device is that you tell people about it. <laughs> and, and so, like, there are so many games like Shadowrun that have a problem where you can't enforce the law. Like your players in a cyberpunk game never understand that we can't just shoot everyone we meet and walk around with rocket launchers and blow everything up. You might say, well, if you do this, um, you know, the law will hate you. But that's an abstract concept. And also, more cops? Hooray! That's a fight. I know what a fight is. I brought the rocket launcher. You see, guys, I was smart to do this. So, in other words, you Grand Theft Auto had such a low opinion of player that he said, look, <laughs> here is your wanted rating. It's right here in the corner of the screen so you can see it. Because we have such contempt for you for understanding the concept of don't be obvious that we're going to put a number here where you can see it. And that was so successful that other games like Saints Row ripped it off. And to be honest, I think that's actually a good influence for a computer game because I'm so sick and tired of playing like games with players who like don't understand. Yeah, you told me something bad would happen, but I don't know what that means. By putting a number in the corner and saying, when this number goes high, your game will get less fun. Well, <laughs> unless you're me and later Saints Row Games, where you deliberately go, okay, I want to bring as many cops as possible because I do have a rocket launcher and I want to blow them all up. Yeah, but, if you're, but if you're on a mission, like if you're on the mission, I got a mission yeah, follow, it's not really like, you have to follow this guy or go to this place, you don't want a five star rating because it makes it convenient. Yeah, it'll make it easy. Right, and, yeah. and so that's why I used to. Be, I used to believe that players could understand abstract concepts like, you know, try to keep the heat down and try to keep a low profile. Now I have to respect that many of the video games are just saying, look, here's a number. Don't let this get hot. Like telling the players outright with no ambiguity at all. Okay. This is something you want to be good. And this is something you want to be bad. Just telling them to their faces as a meta concept, I think is really good because this always gets back to my big bad issue. Did you tell your players not to do it? If you didn't it's, tell them not to do it or didn't tell them to do it, you, can you really be mad when they're not? It's a video it's called signal post. If Thank you don't, you. Prop, if you don't pr- properly signal post something, you cannot expect the players to actually go in, into this room and talk to this person or equip the right weapon, etc. Because they're playing the game. They're looking around, the sounds, the music, the the, the color palette, the one character they want to romance uh, you know, three hours ago. And if you don't say, hey, listen, big boss is coming, and then they keep dying to that boss. They're like, I don't want to play this anymore. It's like, yeah, well, we yeah. have to signal for three possible. hours. Yeah, um, you should bring your rocket launcher because this is the point you're going to need it. Yep. I mean, witness the biggest move in gaming to 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 enforce reactions and negotiation. Nevio will remember this. Like Telltale Games has a low opinion of the players that they have to put it 
text on the screen. But I love you. it because at once it tells you, hey, what you're doing or your decision was important. And two, it lies to you half the time, so it makes you think more about yeah. even the things that don't well, matter. It's great. Yeah. Yeah, getting away from whether it mattered or not, I want to say the wording was they will remember this. And I'm actually pretty keen when I'm playing a role-playing game. Because also, remember, like I may think I'm the most genius actor in the world, but I'm not. And my players might not know the cues. Plus, also, I'm someone pretending to be someone else, pretending to like or dislike someone who isn't real. Okay, that's an acting challenge. So, uh, I, I, I speaking of computer games, I have been more emphatic when I, I will literally just say to players, I like to do that, saying, okay, Don Rinaldi will remember that you helped. I will like yeah. make sure I say that at some point. And, uh, and often with the newer games, we're actually tracking opinion ratings. Of, I'm going to write down that Don Rinaldi has a positive opinion of you because of what you did. Um, you can still role play it and still do that, but by having mechanics in the game that I think I think the good computer games are the ones that are communicating to their players their invisible mechanic. Because uh, video games used to make a lot of this stuff invisible, and now a lot of them are being extremely clear that what you did affected someone else. And I think, you know, that whole persona thing of your relation with this person has gone up to level three, they will die for you now. I think people relate to persona. And yeah. I'm going to stand up and ask the question, people should relate to your role-playing the same level they're relating to persona. I mean, I like it. I think it's it's counterintuitive because the like all of these games, video and otherwise, are pre- presenting simulations of narrative. You want your players to feel like it's seamless, but then we kind of learn through video games that in many ways that can have less impact than showing them the underlying mechanics, which is why they will remember this and, you know, uh, uh, bond ratings and stuff work so well because players want to interact with the game. They want to have that assurance that their decisions do matter beyond a vague notion that the narrative maybe was changed, but the illusion is upheld. Um, And I'll also say that like about when we started this, I was going to ask if anyone had any positive uh, examples of video game design influencing their their RPG games, but I was very cynically thinking like, no, you know what, I think in almost every case this is a bad thing. But I think that signal posting, like Lessons said, and what you're saying here too, Raf, is that, yeah, in terms of communicating to the players the parts of the game that maybe are artificial but do matter to the players, that is a good lesson that could be taken uh, to heart from video games. So... Even my cynical heart has been thawed slightly on this topic. Yeah, because in, in, in video games, there used to be about 15 years ago, I'll talk about immersion, right? How immersive can you get into the game? And the way it was framed is that the less artificial the elements were, the better, right? The, the less you see the GUI, the, the graphics user interface, the stars, the radars and all that, that was the better. The problem was that a lot of they a lot of designers went to Steam and, and there's still something happens and something like the ratings of games that were being finished was dropping. I think it's still 27 to 33%. And when people were asked, why don't you finish the game? It's like, because I'm frustrated. I don't know what to do next. And that's also, I think, something that people are, are learning from video games. They want a more guided experience in many cases, right? Oh my God, like 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 dishon- Dishonor. Any Dishonored fans here? Yeah. Uh, because not only do they give you a device that lets you detect secret hidden items but if you wander into a room where there's a hidden or secret item a prompt will appear on the screen to tell you your device item in this room please pull out the queen's heart so you can find it 
I mean, like, funny. in this game, huge rate. Everyone loves Dishonored. Oh, my God. Yeah, thing, but the thing is what people were doing in, in, in immersion is more like uh, suspension of disbelief. How easy it is for people to accept what is being given to them. Because normally in real life, you won't expect a, a thing to appear unless you're doing AR, right? Or, you know, some kind of glass or something. But in a game, you expect that and you accept it and it becomes part of the visual language. Yeah. No, and I, that's actually part of the immersion, right? So if you have a conversation with your GM, GM says, I, I expect my GM from some point time, like, yeah, if you guys do this, these are the consequences, et cetera. Well, that little aside, that becomes part of the conversation. I, I want to build on what you just said, but by tweaking it a little bit. Uh, immersion is the feeling you get where you're in a, a story and you're feeling the fantasy uh, and, and related to that. I think the word you're looking for is investiture because you can have meta stuff that informs you about stuff that takes you out of the world that makes you feel better about the world like you said hud elements like people enjoy stuff like mass effect or dishonored or the telltale games you know it's like i feel really into this because i talk to these characters and when i influence them they change their mind but it was anti-immersive to have a huge prompt appear on the screen to tell you you know that clem will remember this right there on the screen in big letter but that still let me people feel invested in the story because, oh, wow, I did something and Clem remembered it. It said so right there. So even though it was anti-immersive, it was still investiture. And I, I would even go further to say, when I say rules endorse behavior, it's okay to have meta rules and meta concepts that come out of the rules of minimaxing my character or building on things. If that makes your players more invested in what's going on. I, I think there's often uh, a fight here saying that anything meta is the opposite of good, which is weird because what we're seeing from the computer games are there are meta concepts that people expect. During a cutscene, I'm not allowed to interfere. That's a meta concept. This villain gets away because they're important for the story later. That's anti-immersive. That's a meta textual story concept. They got away because the story needs them to get away. That's meta. And people can still enjoy that as a meta concept. Uh, and yeah, I think that would be my takeaway from, from, from this. The idea that uh, it the computer games are introducing new meta ideas in people's heads, that it should be more like a meta computer game than necessarily like a story. And that can be good and that can be bad, but that's the but role-playing games are constantly pushing the immersive narrative, saying, by the way, rules are bad. People who talk about rules are a power gamer minimax. You can change the rules whenever you want. You're a GM. You understand storytelling. Think back to ancient Greece. They're always pushing that kind of metaphor on people when that's not what they really are. That's not it's not why people came to it. That's not why we have a book of 400 pages of rules. What we are about is we're about people getting invested in the story. And that can happen. For yeah, I think that, that we can put a pin on that because that, that's a larger subject on um, meeting people where they're at right? That a good game meets people where they're at or tries to at least rather than either, you know, keep them arts lens or drag them into something without having any context whatsoever, which is one of the reasons why you always have these two paragraphs in most, uh, you know, <laughs> beginning of every RPG books, most of them. The one that says, you never played a role-playing before. Well, it has dice and stuff like that. And the other one's like, well, we know you played one before. Now let's get to the nitty-gritty about this one is yeah. the one that should be played, right? But that thing that that we have to put a pin on that one because that's we know how to time. Yeah, and, yeah. So uh, let's go ahead and get some final words out of everyone. Lessons, lessons. What do you want to end off with here? Uh, I think I go back to the point that most of these problems, yes, it's a, it's a problem of lens 
of how people view things and, and their, their experience, as Rafferty has said. But ultimately, the underlying problems are not really from one particular source in like video games, but rather something's always been there, like, you know, GMs or DMs who want, you know, they want their story and then want to impose it. And uh, one has to be careful when you diagnose the stuff that to try to get really into the, the, the real problem there right now. Okay. And Red, what do you got to say? Uh, I would just give a, a plea to all of the game runners out there to um, maybe if you're if you're going to take inspiration from video games, take inspiration from their narration, from their characters and their their setting ideas. But when it comes to designing a game to play with your friends, remember that um, everything that video games do, they do because they are limited, because they are pre-recorded media that is played back and you limit all of the potential you have to have fun with your friends all the potential of the squishy flexible human brain when you design your games rigidly like they were video games thank you and raf what do you got to say uh, i want to build on what red said um i'm always fond of saying there are no bad games there are just games that have trouble getting players to show up and so what uh, any good gaming group will read the room. Some groups will be like very heavily invested in story. Some of them will be very invested in, um, uh, you know, meta rules or, or concepts. Some of them will have come after playing World of Warcraft uh, or Final Fantasy 14 and be highly influenced by that. And often you'll have a mix of different people who have different things. So you should be reading the room and discovering what people want. And, um, you know, so if they want something that's more like what they're familiar with, you can use that, those as tools to present things to people. You use those as shorthand and that sort of thing. Um, but also, like, you know, basically, I just want to keep in mind that I want a plea to modern writers and players. Remember that the tabletop games are often, like, as we said, very angry. People said D&D 4 was like a computer game as an insult. And really, the the tabletop games are a lot more like computer games, and you need to make the game be like what people understand that they can get invested in and like. And that's always more important than anything. All right. That's a good point to go ahead and end it all off on. So this has been it for this episode of Notes from the Aleph. We stream bi-weekly Friday at 2 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. You can join us live at twitch.tv slash We also stream and record weekly tabletop games at that same channel. And you can come join us when we start at 10 a.m., 2 p.m., and 6 p.m. Eastern Standard Time on Sundays and Wednesdays. Norman Rafferty here is partner and writer from Sanguine Games. Uh, check out sanguinegames.com and join the Reddit and Twitter and look forward to the upcoming Book of Corals Iron Claw expansion book where you can gauge your own pirate adventure. Don't forget to check out Red Rabbit and book him for a game over on Start Playing Games, uh, startplaying.games as Red Rabbit. And Lessons, where can we find you real quick? Uh, you can find me on the interwebs. Uh, you can find me on YouTube on the Lessons <laughs> 1. You can find me on here on Twitch on the Lessons 1. So number one is important. Uh, streaming uh, games such as the uh, Dark Souls 3 and uh, Stardew Valley, and also talk about freeform gaming, <laughs> and also over at uh, YouTube, where I'm starting a new series of Mass Effect Abridged. Uh, hopefully, the yep. first episode will be at the end of this month, if everything goes according to plan. You can see the trailer now. Give it a like and subscribe. There you go. And of course, be sure to like, comment, subscribe, and come see us all again. Till next time.